A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I am glad you joined the program today. We're going to be talking with my friend Ryan Petty here in just a minute. Ryan's daughter, Elena, murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida back in 2018. And Ryan has really devoted, I, I don't know, I mean, countless hours uh, over the last three years, almost four years now, to trying to stop these types of attacks from happening. Not through gun control, not through trying to, you know, gun ban our way to safety, but by talking with law enforcement, by talking with uh, a threat assessment uh, experts, by talking with individuals who, who have that knowledge and experience uh, to look at these attacks and to find those common points of failure so that we can address them. Um, this is a conversation that, frankly, I, I don't think you're hearing a lot uh, in the mainstream media. I don't think you're, you're having these conversations take place on CNN or MSNBC where they're too busy pointing fingers and blaming gun owners and calling for, you know, more restrictions on uh, our right to keep and bear arms in the hope that this will somehow have an impact on individuals who would take innocent human lives. The fact of the matter is we can stop these attacks not by trying to ban our way to safety, which I don't think is going to work, but by actually looking for the warning signs and recognizing them when they appear. Take a look and a listen to our conversation with Ryan Petty. Ryan, thank you so much, sir, for coming on the program. It's it's really, really good to talk with you today. It's good to see you, Cam. Always a pleasure to be on your show. You know, and and I I hope that folks understand. If they've watched you and I uh, have a conversation before, I think they're going to understand that... Uh, you know, what, what, what I want to do when I bring you on here is to sort of have the conversation that I don't see from a lot of the news media outlets when we see a shooting like the one that occurred in Oxford, Michigan. We all, I mean, we all know how the media covers these stories, um, and I don't think that it's particularly helpful. So I, I want to start by, by just simply asking you, um, A, how much coverage have you been watching, and, and what, what have you not seen? Uh, the media talk about that we should be talking about. Well, um, Cam, I you know I guess first I I would just want to say that my heart goes out to the families of the uh, of the victims who were killed um, and the families of those that were injured. Um, this one, as I understand the the chain of events, um, this happened in a hallway, um, and and the shooter tried to get into the classrooms. This could have been much worse than it than it was. But having said that, I, my heart still aches for these families that are, are are going through this tragedy right now, and recognizing just a few days after that their loved ones are gone, and that this was so preventable. Um, I think that that next feeling they're going to have is the warning signs were there. This could have and should have been prevented. And that's really the story that I don't see the media covering again, because they go for the sensational you know, headlines about uh, the weapon and the parents on the run and the relationship between the parents and the child and the school. And, you know, th those some of those things, some of those elements can be important, but it, it tends to focus just on the weapon that was used. And that's unfortunate because. I think this one could have been prevented. 
So we'll talk about what the media has been talking about uh, in just a little bit, but I want to talk, I want to focus in on something that you just said, which is that you believe based on what you've seen that this particular attack could have been prevented, which would put it in line with the vast majority of other attacks at school that, that the secret services looked at and has written about over the past couple of years, that there were warning signs that were either ignored or downplayed or the, you know, the right thing didn't happen but that there is evidence in the vast majority of these cases that if acted on could prevent these attacks, could stop these attacks from taking place. What have you seen in Oxford that makes you say this could have been preventable? Well, it's just the, you know, the basic facts that we've, that we've learned through some media reports. Um, one being this, there's an article in the Washington Post, and I typically don't quote the Washington Post, but this was an article that was actually brought to my attention by my friends at the Secret Service saying, look, you know, read this article and look at what happened. And I, you know, I obviously I printed a copy out so I could make sure I got this right. But, you know, there were um, there were interactions between this student and a teacher. A teacher saw him drawing, uh, doing searches for ammunition online and then also you know, some very disturbing drawings and it brought, it, it, the teacher did the right thing. It looks like the teacher raised the issue with school administrators. And so there was an inquiry done and, and they brought in some folks, but they brought in counselors. Um, the, uh, it says the count, you know, and here's, here's the uh, superintendent saying, you know, the counselors made a judgment based on their professional training and clinical experience and did not have all the facts we now know. Well, they didn't. And let's talk about why they didn't. And then Jonathan Metzel uh, from the Department of Medicine, Health and, and uh, Society at Vanderbilt University said trained psychologists are no better than chance at predicting which of their patients will commit a violent act. Could, absolutely, he's absolutely right, which is why we don't restrict it just to trained psychologists, which is what it appears happened here uh, in this case school administrators and counselors were the only ones that talked to this young man and the parents. What didn't happen here is what's called behavioral threat assessment. That would also include law enforcement. Law enforcement should be a part of that process. They would have asked the questions um, that didn't get asked by the counselors and by the school district and they might have seen the additional warning signs and uh, the other fact that 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 came out, uh, although the Washington Post didn't connect the dots. And I'm trying to do that here. You know, under Supreme Court precedent, school officials just need reasonable suspicion. It's not it's not probable cause like out in the you know, in the rest of the world. But at school, they just need reasonable suspicion. And I think the behaviors that he exhibited uh, in the days leading up to the shooting were more than reasonable suspicion for a search of his bag, which would have led to the discovery of the firearm he used to kill uh, those those students and injure and injure others that day. Well, and, you know, we've heard from the prosecutor in Oakland County um, who, you know, I have to say, I think sort of I, I, I had real issues with her talking about, uh, I hope that this, you know, causes us to revisit our gun laws before she had even announced charges against the parents. I thought that was completely inappropriate, but uh, be that as it may, the prosecutor herself has said that the school district had the authority based on those circumstances to, to search the bag. And I would argue the locker of this student as well, because we don't, 
know officially whether or not the gun was in his bag at the time of that meeting. But 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 clearly, again, Ryan, I mean, to me, this is sort of we talk, you know, the, the phrase common sense gets bandied about and overused. But to me, it is common sense that if you've got enough concerns that you're having this meeting that the counselor says, look, if we don't have evidence that you've put your son in counseling within 48 hours, we're calling child protective services. I don't know why the decision was made to let that child remain on campus. To me, the decision should have been he can't come back until you've proven that he's now receiving counseling. I would have I would have flipped the script a little bit. Um, yeah. But also, again, to not bring in the deputy that is there on campus to not say, look, just to reassure us that that, you know, there is no issue here. Uh, before we let you go back to class, we want to just check your bag. We want to make sure that your locker doesn't have anything that it shouldn't have inside. Once we've been satisfied that that you're safe, uh, then you're good to go. That to me seems like it would have been a pretty reasonable thing to do. We're we're not bringing out the SWAT team. We're not you know making an announcement over the PA. Hey, everybody, we, we've got concerns about this student. But to to handle it you know, uh, circumspectly, but again, to ensure that there isn't going to be a problem with that student. I don't, I don't see what the issue is there with a policy like that. Well, you, you don't see an issue. I don't see an issue and the Supreme court doesn't see an issue. So that, uh, that is in fact, what should have happened. And if that school resource officer that trained, uh, and, uh, you know, law enforcement officer had been involved in those discussions and conversations and had seen, the same what we would what I would call now evidence. Um, he may he may have taken different action that day. He may not have had to been the one to stop him from killing his classmates, and, and uh, that that day at school he could have been the one that prevented the whole thing. But he wasn't involved. My understanding is he was not involved in that, and there was no proper behavioral threat assessment done. Now. I'm being very critical of the school administrators and sort of how they handled that because this feels a lot like Parkland, feels a lot like the same mistakes were made here. Let me let me say this in defense of some of the things that I understand that they did right. They had the doors locked. In fact, I understand the assailant, the attacker tried to shoot through uh, some of the doors, but the the students had gone into a safe zone in the in the classrooms that prevented him from hurting, uh, being able to shoot uh, into those classrooms. So they did some things right. Um, so I, I want to give them credit for doing those things right. But these behavioral warning signs require a coordinated effort. It should have been school officials. It should have been law enforcement and counselors all together as a behavioral threat assessment team. Had that happened, that's why I say this could have been and should have been prevented, but that didn't happen here. And at this point, do we know whether or not that was that was because of policy or because of the individual determination of the counselor? I mean, I mean, you know, again, I don't want to lay blame on the counselor if the counselor was following the the proper, you know, the quote unquote proper procedures from the school. Uh, but it does, as you say, I mean, there are some reminders of the horrific events at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School that do make you wonder, OK, so were there, you know, sort of restorative justice policies that prevented that law enforcement officer from being a part of any sort of assessment of this student? I don't I haven't seen the policies at that district yet, and I know they will come to light um, um, soon. Uh, districts tend to not publish these policies, uh, and so it may be on their website. It may not. My, if I had to guess, it would be very similar 
to what happens across the country. Many, many school districts fight back against the notion of sharing information with, with particularly law enforcement. Um, they, they don't want to share information. They view it as uh, what, the, what um, um, opponents of law enforcement in schools call the school to prison pipeline. They claim it unfairly targets um, minority students. Um, there's clear evidence against that. I'd love to you know, come back and talk to you more about that, but there's clear evidence that, that refutes those, those claims. However, um, law enforcement here, I think participating in those discussions would have come to a different conclusion. And that conclusion would have been, you know, I'm just gonna search. This, this is disturbing behavior, what he said and what he, what he has done. I'm going to search his bag. I'm going to search his locker. And that posture, even that posture might have changed the attitude of the parents. Now, they're a separate issue. They went on the run. They've got their own legal battles to fight now. But having that law enforcement presence, that, that knowledge of the law in those discussions is what makes the difference. School officials aren't students of the law. They don't know many times what they can and can't do. And so that's why it's so important to have law enforcement as part of, part of those discussions. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and listen, I mean, you say the parents are a completely different discussion and you're right. But I, I you know, again, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this. I mean, as a parent of a gun owner uh, or excuse me, as a gun owning parent, um, you know, I, I, I have thought to myself, okay, so Let's say that I hadn't picked up on any, you know, changes in my child's behavior. We had gone out, we had purchased a firearm, we had gone plinking the weekend before, and he's, you know, caught looking up ammunition uh, the next Monday in school. I don't know that that would have been a red flag for me all by itself. Right. But that then coupled with this really disturbing uh, a drawing, right, that the voices won't stop and talking about blood. Those two things combined, I think, would have caused me as a parent to say, all right, time out here. This is this is a little different. And if my kid had said, well, you know, I was just designing a game. You know, I, I don't think that I would have bought that. First of all, I would have known whether or not my kid is actually interested in video game design, whether he's, you know, really done something like that or whether that was just a story to be told. But, you know. When I look at the parents' attitudes before the meeting, before they went off on the run, before, you know, all of the strange behavior that we've seen uh, from these parents afterwards, we don't know at this point what kind of warning signs were present at home um, before the weekend, before the shooting. But it, it, it strikes me, Ryan, as it would be pretty unusual if this situation escalated from zero to 240 miles an hour in the span of just a, a day or two. Yeah, these things these things develop over time. There's 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 usually a breaking point. There's some um, event, a triggering event, if you will. Uh, in the case of the Parkland killer, many believe that that was the death of his adoptive mother in in the October uh, prior to the shooting. That that was the event that sent him down the path towards attacking the school. And there may have been something similar in this case, but the parent, you know, I, what I'm finding inexcusable at this point, and again, all of this is just based on media reports, but they were excusing the behavior. And in fact, uh, the mother indicated, as I understand it, she said, uh, hey, LOL, just don't get caught again. So that makes me wonder, was there, 
you know, there are responsible gun owning parents and then there are negligent gun owning parents. And in this case, it seems like they were indifferent. Indifference probably being very kind. Uh, it's probably negligent. They're facing their own legal battles. Clearly, this, uh, I don't think this, this uh, uh, attacker should have had access to a firearm. His parents should have restricted that access or, and, and they didn't. And we don't know why yet. We'll find that out, I'm sure. But they didn't seem to take this seriously. And in fact, you know, quite, quite frankly, they pushed back, it sounds like, against the school officials, refused to take him out of class the rest of the day. Again, this is where a law enforcement officer could step in and say in a much more authoritative way, no, you're, you, are, you are leaving the campus now, you are taking him home, or I am going to take him down to juvenile detention. You know, that's your choice. And I think mm -hmm. if, that, if that had happened, um, I, I don't think we're here talking about this uh, school attack. You know, I, sadly, I think you're right. Um, and, and yet here we are. And again, the debate has, you know, once again, we're, we're seeing this in Michigan right now. And I got to tell you, I was so disheartened, uh, Ryan, I, I saw a quote from a Democratic state senator, uh, Republicans and Democrats in Michigan, obviously going back and forth about, you know, how to respond to this. And there was a Republican who said, well, I, I'd like to see us talk about, you know, giving money to school districts so they could put metal detectors in. Obviously, this isn't going to stop every attack, but it's a it's a security measure. And the response from one Democratic state senator was, no, I don't want to I don't want to talk about any sort of security upgrades. We've got to focus on guns. We've got to focus on the gun. And I look, I understand that mindset. I obviously completely disagree with it. But the the the, the idea that, well, if we just pass a child access prevention law, that that'll turn every irresponsible gun owning parent into a responsible gun owning parent is absurd. Uh, again, it might allow for a charge to be filed after the fact, but we're already seeing these parents face involuntary manslaughter charges. So I, in my mind, we can already hold parents accountable after the fact. But what we need to be thinking about doing is how to stop these things from happening in the first place. Yeah. And we know that the focus on the gun is so misguided because the mode of attack will just change. I mean, there's there's a uh, a case out in Utah where a knife was used and 15, 15 were uh, you know injured. So the, a student that's in, intent on hurting others, some a kid that's hearing voices and wanting to uh, do harm to himself or others, um, they're going to find a way. So focusing on the firearm is the wrong is the wrong approach. What should have happened here is that is action should have been taken based on that teacher's report. The teacher, by all accounts, did the right thing, reported the disturbing behavior. The school was ill-equipped to process the information that it had and to share that with partners in law enforcement who I think would have taken a very different view of, of that evidence and acted differently. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just, it is disheartening Cam, because we know how to prevent these things. And the, and the Oxford school district seemed like they were so close. They did, they had the school doors locked. They had safe zones mapped out. I understand they had even done some drills to, to protect their kids. What they hadn't done effectively is partnered with law enforcement and implemented a behavioral threat assessment and management model that, you know, I've been jumping up and down for over three years, 
um, saying this is the this is the way we stop these attacks. And it's not, you know, again, it's not just me. It's the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. The Secret Service talks about this until we're all blue in the face. And until our school districts change their posture and start to recognize the opportunity that they have to share information and partner with law enforcement in protecting their schools, none of this will change. What gives me hope, Cam, is that what we've seen over the last year and a half with parents getting more involved in, in school board races and, in, and, and coming to school board meetings and making their voices heard, I'm hopeful that they won't just do that for mask mandates. They won't just do that over curriculum. They will go to those school board meetings and demand, demand that these school boards take care of their kids. Uh, while they're at school. And for those teachers unions, I'll just say it, you should be out advocating for those teachers because they're at the same end of the of that firearm. They're at the wrong end of that firearm. And those teachers unions should be advocating for protecting uh, those teachers in school too. So parents, get out there. Nobody is going to care and love for your kids, uh, love your kids and protect them the way you will. But you should demand that these schools take school safety seriously. And uh, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that parents will continue to make their voices heard in our school districts. Uh, can, can we drill down on that for just a second, Ryan, before we run out of time here? Because, uh, you know, look, we are seeing parents engaged and they are showing up at school boards, but but what is it specifically that they should be calling for? I mean, you talk about these behavioral uh, 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 threat assessments. Um, you know, should parents be asking, okay, look, what is our policy in terms of students, when a teacher does report them or a classmate reports them, what is the policy? What is the involvement with law enforcement? Do we have a, a behavioral threat assessment team in place? I mean, what exactly, what specifically should these parents be be asking about and then calling for if, if they're not already in place? So they, great question. And they should be asking, I wanna understand the discipline policy at your school. I wonder, I wanna, I wanna understand if you, if you've implemented behavioral threat assessment as a school safety measure and what's your policy on that. And I want to, under, I want to understand whether or not there's law enforcement present at my, at my child's school. And they should be advocating for those three things. Tell me what your discipline policy is and how it's implemented. Tell me, do we have a behavioral threat assessment policy and is it implemented in all of our schools? And is there a law enforcement presence in those behavioral threat assessment teams and on campus. Okay. Ryan, listen, as always, sir, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you joining us. Um, and I want to extend an invite to you. I, I, I'm going to spring this on you. But um, I had a conversation, I don't know, it was probably a month or so ago with a guy named George Brockler, who's a former prosecutor out in Colorado. He was the uh, prosecutor for the uh, Aurora Theater shooting. Uh, he also prosecuted one of his last cases was involved with the, uh, the, the student at the STEM school in uh, Highland Park, Colorado. And he is somebody, as I've talked with him and I've talked with you, I've realized I really want the two of you to get together and, and meet one another and talk uh, about these issues. Um, so I would like to extend an invite for you and George uh, to come on the show one day in the next week or two. Uh, so we can sit down and have more of a roundtable discussion. Um, and again, try to try to move us forward here. So we don't just get stuck in this, you know, endless loop of finger pointing and blame casting. And we need this gun law. We need that. 
I want to I want to talk about what you all have learned with your experiences borne out by tragedy so that we can hopefully again not have to talk about these types of horrific events. And I'd love to. Um anything we can do to move the conversation forward. I just I view parents as really the critical factor here and and hopefully parents being reengaged with their school districts uh over over the term of this pandemic will be the spark that's needed for them to go in and ask all kinds of questions. What are just understand what the policies are in your kids school, understand what's being taught in the classrooms and understand how these administrators what steps they're taking to protect your kids at school. Absolutely. Ryan Petty, thank you as always my friend. It's good talking with you today. Thank you, Cam. I appreciate Ryan's time, and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation again with Ryan and George Brockler uh, in the days ahead. Right now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a headline out of Utah. Three killings tied to the same gang. Frustrated detectives keep arresting the same people. This is, in essence, like the quintessential recidivist report headline, isn't it? KSL. Uh, com. It says, back in October, a unified Utah police detective went to California to talk to a guy about what he knew about an unsolved shooting in Mill Creek, Utah, last year. That man was 20-year-old Annie Joker, who shot two police officers before he was shot and killed by police last week. He was in custody in Orange County, California, on a weapons offense. And during this conversation, the detective said that Joker had written down lyrics from a song that his friend Awad Mayak had written, My Bleep took a life from me. Body drop right in front of me. Uh, worthy lyrics. Unified Utah police say the song is specifically about the killing in Mill Creek. Now, uh, Mayock is not being called a suspect in the case. He's not been arrested. But Unified Police Detectives say that he was at the scene of the killing that night with at least one other person. Uh, and Joker, able to relate to the detective details about the crime scene that night that were told to him, supposedly, uh, by Mayock. About three weeks after that shooting in Mill Creek, Mayock stopped by Salt Lake Police in a stolen vehicle, four other people. Uh, one of those passengers, a 22-year-old named uh, Book Mawat Book, who's currently charged with murdering University of Utah football player Aaron Lowe, uh, also discovered in that car a gun that police say had been forensically linked to the murder in Mill Creek. And a police detective noted back last month in a search warrant that, quote, over approximately the last several months, members of the Metro Gang Unit have noticed a large increase in violent crime across the Salt Lake Valley involving various different gangs. The problem is that a lot of these gang members are showing up time and time and time again. For example, the case of the 20-year-old Joker. Uh, this wasn't even the first time that he was shot by police, according to KSL. Back in 2017, four years ago, when Joker was 17 years old, he was shot in the abdomen by a police officer in Cottonwood Heights, Utah, after fleeing from police and reaching into his pants for something. Uh, police found a, uh, excuse me, medical personnel found a loaded 22 caliber revolver concealed in Joker's underwear when he was taken to a local hospital. The police shooting determined to be legally justified. Uh, less than two years later, 2019, Joker, one of several people arrested and accused of shooting at another person during a confrontation. Joker allegedly the getaway driver in that incident. Mayock, by the way, also arrested in connection with that same shooting. The next year, October 29th, 2020, police say the Joker was involved in another shooting. Uh, Joker had claimed that he had fired at rival gang members in self-defense, according to charging documents. He later called emergency dispatchers and claimed he had been shot in the leg, but declined medical attention and refused to say where he was. 
He uh, pleaded guilty in June of this year to that case and several others. When it came time for sentencing, prosecutors asked that Joker be sent to prison. But on July 27th of this year, 3rd District Judge Matthew Bates instead placed Joker on three years probation. Prosecutors say he was placed on probation despite the state's objection. We argue that a prison sentence was appropriate due to the violent nature of the three crimes, additional aggravating factors. But no, he, uh, again, received three years probation. Now, that's not the end of the story. Joker also used an alias, uh, Ramon Hulima. And in August, an arrest warrant was issued for Hulima for being a fugitive out of California, wanted in Orange County, again, on a weapons charge. He was arrested. He was returned to California on August the 30th. While he's there incarcerated in California, you've got police in Unified Utah who are investigating the shooting death of Manuel Felipe Gonzalez Cortez uh, back uh, in October of last year. Um, That's when the detective went to California to question Joker about what he knew about the killing. Joker told police that uh, Mayock was present during that shooting. Then November 1st, Salt Lake police stopped a stolen vehicle, five people inside, including Mayock and Book. Uh, That's when the gun was discovered. Uh, And then again... You've got uh, a Joker who is released from custody uh, in California. And then, uh, again, last week, shot and killed by police in Utah. So, not just with Joker, but with Buck and several others, you've got lengthy criminal histories, extensive involvement with police, extensive involvement in the court system. But unfortunately, minimal to zero consequences for these crimes. Instead, what we heard time and time again from judges were, don't come back here because the next time it's going to count. Don't come back here because the next time we're going to crack down. Don't come back here because the next time you're going to go to prison. Time and again. That's what these defendants heard. And given that the consequences never came, Uh, It's, I think, reasonable to conclude that the message didn't sink in because what they were being told and what was actually happening to them were two very different things. Now, today's armed citizen story from Albuquerque, New Mexico, where police have determined that a recent shooting was done in self-defense. They say a a Las Cruces man acted in self-defense when he fatally shot another man Monday evening Uh, in Albuquerque. But they still arrested the shooter, by the way, uh, 46-year-old James Lawrence, on a probation violation. He's been booked into the Metropolitan Detention Center. Again, this is going to surprise some folks, but it is possible for somebody to have committed a crime and not lose their right of self-defense. You can be wanted on a probation violation. Heck, you can be a felon who's who's not legally allowed to possess a firearm. But you can still legally act in self-defense. You're going to face charges for possessing the firearm. But if prosecutors determine that uh, you were justified in defending yourself, you're not going to face charges for that. Lawrence may very well be facing charges for being a felon in possession of a firearm, according to Gilbert Gallegos, who's a Albuquerque Police Department spokesman. He said that homicide detectives uh, determined that this shooting was justified as uh, Francisco Fonseca, the man who was shot, had attacked Lawrence with a blunt object. Uh, Now, Gallegos gave no details as to what led to the incident, but witnesses at the scene did tell detectives that uh, uh, James Lawrence uh, did shoot Francisco Fonseca in self-defense as Fonseca attacked him. So the police say that Lawrence is not going to be charged for the shooting. That is considered a justifiable homicide. 
But Lauren's on probation for a case just two years ago after serving time in which he stabbed a Las Cruces Walmart employee who tried to stop him from shoplifting. After his arrest in that case, Lawrence told police that he was stealing food for his family and that he was, quote, defending himself when he stabbed the employee with a knife. That's not self-defense. And a jury or a judge, we don't know how this case was adjudicated, clearly didn't believe that that 2019 case was, in fact, James Lawrence acting in self-defense. Police believe this case a little different. We'll keep our eyes on this uh, situation and bring you any updates as they become available. Finally today, our good deed of the day from Sacramento, California, where a California Highway Patrol officer in the right place at the right time wasn't able to do the right thing to save the life of a child who was being murdered by a, uh, a woman there in Sacramento County. Uh, this was, I think, uh, it was earlier this week, uh, Tuesday afternoon, as a matter of fact. Uh, 31-year-old Taylor Delane Green, now charged with suspicion of attempted homicide, child endangerment, resisting arrest, trying to take an officer's gun, as well as driving under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Uh, it was about 6.30 Monday afternoon. California Highway Patrol got a report about a vehicle that was blocking a rural road. The officer goes out, he's checking on the vehicle, and then he hears screams coming from about 100 yards away. He turns, he sees the uh, adult woman in some weeds adjacent to an irrigation canal. Officer said that Green was acting irrationally and appeared to be under the influence of drugs, and as the officer got closer, he saw that Green was actually holding a child face down, quote, smothering him in the muddy embankment. When the officer reached for the boy, Green completely submerged herself and the child in about five feet of water. So the officer then jumped into the irrigation canal, pulled the boy up from under the water, breaking him free from Green. The officer then starts to crawl back up the embankment, Green's fighting with him, trying to pull him and the child underwater. The officer uh, allegedly had to fight Green for several minutes while holding on to the boy with one hand. She then tried, allegedly, to take several uh, uh, swipes of the officer's gun uh, while she continued to, uh, quote, violently resist, according to the California Highway Patrol. At this point, other officers had arrived, and the officer was able to hand the child to a Yuba County Sheriff Sergeant who had just arrived on scene uh, sheriff's deputies, Marysville, California police officers, as well as other California Highway Patrol officers ended up responding and eventually were able to take Green into custody. Uh, bail has been set at $500,000. At this point, it's unclear whether or not Green was actually related to the boy. One would assume so, but we don't know for sure. But again, in the right place at the right time, willing to do the right thing. This uh, unnamed, to this point, California Highway Patrol officer who was able to save the life of a four-year-old child uh, who was being allegedly murdered by a, a 31-year-old woman there in an irrigation canal. We, again, will follow this story and bring you more details uh, as they become available. That is going to do it, though, for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. want to thank you for being a part of the conversation, as always. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Don't forget to check out BearingArms.com throughout the day for even more of the latest information about your right to keep and bear arms that you need to know about. And, of course, if you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber. That's going to give you exclusive content like news stories, analysis, and more. Uh, but it's also a great way to show your support for the work we're doing here at BearingArms.com. And if you use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, you'll get a significant discount on your VIP membership. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free. 